Hello, friends. Welcome to Wednesday Wake Up, a podcast hosted by Gregory Maloof, Buddhist Dharma teacher in the lineage of Ruth Dennison, mental health therapist, and mindfulness coach. Wednesday Wake Up explores the ancient teachings of Buddhism through the lens of Western psychology, neuroscience, and the modern human potential movement. Our commitment is for these teachings to educate, challenge, and inspire you to awaken to your deepest potential to live a truly fulfilling life of wisdom, joy, and compassion. Thank you for joining us. May these teachings serve you well. So, the first noble truth. I was trying to think of the Dharma talk for tonight, and so the last few weeks, as many of you know, if you've been following here or on the podcast, we had one of our talks was on, I think the theme of the talk was kind of what is the Dharma or what is not the Dharma and how do we figure that out for ourselves and how is that meaningful for us as, as meditators. And um, so our first Dharma talk was like, what is Buddhism? We talked about religion and spirituality. There I am air quoting again. <laughs> and then we talked about therapy. Like to what degree is the Dharma therapy? To what degree is it not therapy? And what are the differences between Dharma and therapy and what to expect out of our meditation practice? And then we had a week where we talked about spiritual bypass, where we sort of use the Dharma to sidestep things that we're dealing with that we don't like to touch with our hearts, like where our heart is closed off and we're doing our practice and we think we're doing the work, but we're actually kind of hiding and we don't know that we're hiding. So we're bypassing, touching down on the dukkha and the suffering instead of actually opening our hearts up to the experience. And we talked about that. So if you haven't heard that, that set of podcasts, they're all posted. Two of them are posted up um, so you can catch up on those. And then it started making me think, well, if that is not the Dharma, then what is the Dharma? <laughs> Maybe we should get back to like Dharma. Like, what are we doing here and why are we doing it? So uh, in honor of the fact that in June we'll do our uh, Four Noble Truth retreat, I wanted to just talk a little bit about the First Noble Truth. And one of the challenges of the First Noble Truth for a teacher, for myself, is to try and make the First Noble Truth interesting enough to where we can keep talking about it and we don't forget about it. Because the first noble truth is that in life there's suffering. It's not very romantic. It's not very exciting. As a teacher, you're always like, oh God, I got to talk about suffering again. And people don't want to talk about suffering. So how do you make the first noble truth something that's interesting and something that we remind ourselves that the Buddha, the Buddha's teaching, the four noble truths, that there is suffering, that there is a cause of suffering, there is a way out of suffering and that there is a path that one can learn and train the heart and mind to free oneself from stress and discontent. That is the whole entirety of Buddhism, no matter what lineage you're looking at and what tradition, the four noble truths are there across and they're shared in the Dharma. And the Buddha would say over and over again that his whole teachings are contained in those four statements. And he would remind people when they asked him questions, that the only thing he was concerned with was, is it possible to have freedom and happiness? That was his interest. His interest wasn't about philosophy and smoke and mirrors and, I don't know, laser shows and all of this like fancy schmancy stuff. His whole presentation of the Dharma was, let's see if we can get out of suffering. Let's see if we can find a way to a happiness that doesn't harm ourselves and doesn't harm others. Let's see if we can find a happiness that is not dependent on outside circumstances so that as the world goes up and down and falls apart continually, we can find a place in ourselves 
where there's a sense of ease and stability and love no matter what is going on outside. So when we look at the Dharma, even though it has incredible complexity and beauty and nuance, it really is just the Four Noble Truths. There is suffering and our hearts break and the world breaks our hearts over and over again. And we as beings in this domain, whatever this is, have to come to terms with the fact of stress and friction and discontent and disappointment. And to the degree we can just really honor the fact of that human experience is to the degree that we can begin to overcome it and find a way to have peace inside. So we have to keep coming back to the first noble truth. There's no way to get over it. The funny thing about the first noble truth is that it's very easy to think we understand it because we kind of want to get to the good stuff. It's like, yeah, yeah, they're suffering. What's the next one? Like, what's the second noble truth? What's the third noble truth? What about psychic powers? When am I going to get those? Like, we don't want to hang out and talk about the first noble truth. We want to find out about the, the cool stuff. So I want to try and just ground ourselves in the first noble truth and remind us why it's so important and why it's so hard to keep the heart coming back to this truth of suffering. One of the things that's important to know about the first noble truth is that when the Buddha describes suffering, dukkha, and I'll explain that in a second, but when the, when the Buddha describes suffering, he purposefully describes suffering in terms of things that are normative for all human beings and universal across cultures, ethnicities. His idea of suffering is very straightforward and general enough that every single human being that's ever been has experienced it in some way. And it's purposefully done that way. He wants us to look at suffering as universal and normal for all human beings that are human and experiencing what it is to be incarnated as this, this thing, whatever this is, right? So that's important to know when the Buddha says, hey, the first thing to remember is that with your life will come discontent. And that's normative. It's just what's going to happen because you're a human being and we all experience it. And so one thing the first noble truth does is it binds us together as a community of people who are all living, breathing, and experiencing stress and have known loss and sadness and sorrow. And that we can look at each other and know that dukkha is something that all of us have in common. It's something that we're all experiencing and that we would all like some less of, right? <laughs> it's not like we're like, ooh, dukkha, let's have more. All of us have this universal experience of, wow, this is uncomfortable. Can I, can I not have that as much, right? Can I get out of that? And so that's what the Buddha is saying that binds us together is this first noble truth of discontent. We all experience it no matter who we are and what our experience in life has been. I once gave a Dharma talk on the first noble truth and off the cuff, I, I gave this analogy. And to this day, students come up to me and say, do you remember that talk you gave where you gave that analogy for the first noble truth? So I'm gonna give this analogy that I've given before. So the acceptance of the first noble truth is very challenging because oftentimes when someone invites us to accept the reality of suffering, we can mistake accepting the fact of suffering for consent or support of it happening. Or we say, I accept that there's suffering, which means, well, if it's normal, then I don't need to stop it. I'll just let it happen. Like if someone's suffering and we're just like, well, that's just a first noble truth. And then we go about our day. So part of the challenge of the first noble truth is 
thinking that accepting the reality of suffering in the world is a way of dismissing suffering, right? And, oh, it's just the first noble truth. So that's not what we're doing with the first noble truth. We're inviting the pain in. We're inviting that to touch in our hearts. The acceptance that we're experiencing goes more like this. Every single one of us that lives in Portland, now some people will be listening to this as a podcast online and elsewhere, but in the Pacific Northwest, if you live in most parts of Oregon, especially in Portland, it rains. It's rainy here, right? It just is. It's just wet. It rains in Portland. And if you are a being that has existence in Portland, rain is going to happen to you. It, you can't live in Portland without it happening. You're going to get wet at some point. That's the nature of what it is to be here. And so on some level, we accept that. If you're going to live in Portland, at some point you have to accept that it rains here. And so if you live in Portland, the acceptance of the rain becomes sort of a a given, right? It's a de facto acceptance for the fact of rain. It doesn't make sense if you're living in Portland to wake up and say, I can't believe it's raining. What is going on? This doesn't make any sense to my mind. That's never going to happen because you've accepted that it rains here. And that's what I mean by acceptance. The fact of it, you don't have to like it. You're going to protect yourself from it but you accept that it is the nature of where we're living that you're going to get wet sometimes in Portland. Now, it might be on a day you don't want it to happen, certainly, but you're not going to say to yourself, it really shouldn't be happening in this part. Like, it just does. So the reason I use that analogy is that the acceptance of suffering is the acceptance of the fact that it is. It doesn't mean you have to like it. it doesn't mean you don't want to get out of it, but you do have to open up and embrace the fact of it happening to you and everyone around you. And it's not something you can stop from happening. It's just going to be the fact of the experience. So that helps me understand like what we mean by acceptance. You don't have to like it or want it to happen more or less. It's not about your reaction to it. It's about acknowledging that the human experience has so much friction in it. That if we are human beings, at some point there's going to be grief, loss, and discontent. And we look at that as something that we want to befriend. And the reason we want to accept it is because the mind doesn't intuitively do that. Most of the time when suffering arises, our natural experience is to say, no, thank you. I don't want this to be the case. And in some cases, we deny that it's happening. And in other cases, we run away from the suffering because we don't want it to be there. Or we ignore it. Or we... Um, we feel like we're being punished sometimes by it. Something happens, it's hurtful, and it just feels, oh man, why is this happening to me? That kind of thing, right? We don't have a good relationship with dukkha. Our natural response is to deny or push away or distract with some kind of sensual pleasure. So our intuition is not to accept what it is. So when the Buddha says that the first noble truth is the truth of suffering, and our goal with the first noble truth is to comprehend or accept it. The reason that we're doing that is because that's not our natural response. Our natural response is to hide from it. So the invocation of the first noble truth is one, to really embrace the reality of it, and two, to be able to open up and lean into the wind, right? Not to go this, but to be like, okay, I'm gonna, 
I'm going to be a little vulnerable to the experience. So that's, that's what we're doing with the first noble truth. One, we're acknowledging, and two, we're leaning into the experience and really feeling it deeply. We're feeling the pain of what it is to be a human being. That's the first step of any practice you do in the Dharma is that moment right there. Now, the term dukkha, this is something I always like to include when I talk about dukkha, also has other translations other than the word suffering. And I know with myself, probably for the first 20 years of my practice, whenever I talked about the Dharma or even thought about it in my own head, the word suffering felt so heavy and extreme, right? Like life is suffering. It's like, geez, that's what a way to start the day, right? It's so heavy, right? And usually suffering is like, you know, big things that, that happen. And I was, it was years before I found out that the term dukkha actually has several other meanings that personally I relate to more than translating it as suffering. So I'm going to read four words to you that are equal translation for the word dukkha. And I want you to notice how your heart and mind respond to the words. Like which ones does it land? Which one of these lands for you? So dukkha can mean unsatisfying, parts of your life or experiences that don't satisfy, leave you with a sense of discontent. That's dukkha. Another one is unreliable, unreliable, something that you can't count on. And think of that experience in your heart when you have a person or place or circumstance where you can't rely on that circumstance or person. How that feels, that disappointment of not being able to rely on something. Stress is another one. Dukkha can be translated literally as stressful. Life is stressful. True, right? And the last one is uneasy. Dis-ease, not disease as in sickness, but uneasiness, right? Not feeling at ease. So when you think of those words... That is what the Buddha says when he says the first noble truth of suffering means we have to get in touch with, in our own hearts, the fact that life is throwing at us a lack of reliability, a sense of stressfulness, a sense of dis-ease and discontent. And that is the nature of the experience, that that is the roller coaster, the vicissitudes of life are this roller coaster of stress unreliability, unsatisfied experiences, and that all human beings, you know, you're not going to find a human being that has gone through life and not experienced a moment where they felt let down by something, or they haven't felt a sense of dis-ease in their life, or they don't know what you mean when you say, I'm having a really stressful day. Yeah, bingo, connection, heart to heart, right? We all know what that means when someone's like, Man, I'm really stressed out. We're like, ah, I hear you. Me too. Okay. Like there's that heart-to-heart -heart connection. It's not a mystery to figure out what stress means for a human. We know what that friction feels like. The etymology, uh, and for those who are new here or new to my teachings, I love etymologies, so get ready for those. Um, the etymology of dukkha, du means bad, D-U, and ka, the K-H-A part, means um, empty. That's the etymology. And the image that our dear friend Joseph Goldstein, uh, meditation teacher, Joseph Goldstein wrote in his book, Mindfulness, A Practical Guide to Awakening. He gives this whole description of how some folks translate the etymology of dukkha. And the empty refers to 
So back in the day, when they're traveling in or carrying things in an ox cart, the empty is the place where the axle fits into the wheel, that space around, and two things happen. One, it doesn't fit well, so it gives you a bumpy ride, or grit and dust gets collected and it doesn't turn very well. So Duca is kind of like riding in an ox cart that isn't fit with its wheels very well. That's the image that you're getting. It's this constant vibration, this constant agitation beneath things. So no matter where you're taking that ox cart, dukkha is what's underneath, right? All of our lives have a sense of vibration underneath. Now, an ox cart, as far as I know, did not have a cell phone hookup or email or Spotify or shocks for that matter. So that is one heck of a journey through life if you're comparing life to an ox cart ride. That's not something you want to do casually. You're not going to run to the store in an ox cart to go get something, right, casually. Like, that's an uncomfortable journey. And so when you think of the first noble truth, you can see what the Buddha was talking about. He's talking about that underlying agitation that all of us know very well as human beings. And to honor that as the energy that we are riding on in this universe, in this domain of experience. The tricky part of dukkha is that dukkha is actually not a thing or an object. We, we say it as if, if, if it's a thing, like I can say dukkha, like I can point to that fire extinguisher over there, like that's dukkha. So dukkha is not an object that can be pointed to, and this is where it gets a little tricky. Dukkha is not pain, like physical pain that we experience. Dukkha is actually the contact between the present moment experience that arises and the way the heart and mind react to that experience. It's what lies in between you and your experience of the present moment. So it is a crossroads of conditions that we experience moment to moment. And so you can't point to it, but you can point to the feeling of it. Dukkha is an internal experience that comes from the way your heart and mind receives the information of the present moment. So it's a reactive phenomenon. It's something that we're participating in. So when we say dukkha, like if, so we're all in a room, right? Let's say something happens. Uh, one of the lights falls and it crashes and some people in the room have a startle response. They're like, oh, whoa, that scared me. I wasn't expecting that. And some other people weren't paying attention. So they turned around and they're like, oh, the light fell. To those who were startled by it, that might be a sense of dukkha, right? For those who weren't paying attention because they were putting a cushion away, they just heard a sound and had no response to that experience at all. So you wouldn't point to the falling of the light as dukkha. You'd point to the dukkha in the heart. It's like, oh, that scared me, dukkha. Dukkha is in the reactivity of the heart and mind, not inherent in the experience itself. That's just a light that falls. If no one's in the room and the light, and the light falls, is there Dukkha? <laughs> well, hats off to Zen, right? So if the light falls and no one reacts to it, no Dukkha, because Dukkha is not in the experience. The Dukkha is when they come in and realize it damaged the floor and then they have to pay for a new light. There's Dukkha and whoever gets to stumble upon that. Or who the person who ends up sweeping it up, Dukkha, right? But when we talk about Dukkha, 
we talk about it kind of as it's a thing. That's because language is limited in the way we can express what it means. But dukkha is a subjective experience, which is why the Buddha um, talks about it in such general terms, because we're all experiencing dukkha in various ways. We could all be in the exact same experience and have a different flavor of what the dukkha actually is, because we all have different hearts and minds, the way we interpret the information. So that's another thing to remember, that dukkha is a result of the way we participate in the present moment. Generally speaking, when we bring to the present moment heart qualities of compassion, balance, wisdom, and joy, when those qualities meet the present moment, there's an experience of freedom. When our reaction to the present moment is contraction of the heart, when it's aversion and fear, restlessness, agitation, then dukkha is the, fric- dukkha is the fire that burns in that interaction. So that's why in our meditation, we learn to cultivate heart-mind qualities that we use to bring into the present moment that give us a sense of wakefulness and ease and joy. And we try to let go of the heart-mind qualities that when we do bring them to the moment, tend to give us the dukkha, right? The interaction that's aversive. So the beauty of the first noble truth is that it doesn't, it doesn't live by itself. The first noble truth is a part of a family of the four noble truths. So the first noble truth is that, okay, there's suffering, that we're going to have moments where something arises and it's going, we're going to react in a way and there's going to feel sorrow and sadness and regret and whatever the case may be. But then there's the second noble truth, which brings good news, which is that, hey, that there is a cause of suffering, which is the reaction in the heart and mind. And because there's a cause, we can get a cure. We can go unwind that and dodge the cause, essentially, right? The Buddha sort of saw himself as a physician, and it was like, I have a prescription to end suffering, which is the training of the heart and mind. So there's good news that follows the first noble truth, which can be a little on the you know, more de- existentially depressing side of things, which is that there's an out. And the reason that there's a way out of suffering is because we're participating in it. That is the, gr- the, g- the good news of the Dharma, is that if suffering were embedded in the experience and not in our hearts, we'd never be able to be free from it. Every time the light falls, we'd have pain, agitation, stress, discontent. If we can't change the way we respond to the world, the world would always be hitting us full force, and we'd be in a lot of emotional discontent all the time. But we can change our point of view, right? We can balance our heart. We can generate a sense of wisdom. We have the potential to forgive, to offer mercy, to offer love and kindness to ourselves, to others. If those things didn't have any effect, man, that first noble truth would just be, that would be a really sucky spiritual practice. (laughs) Like we would just be like, guess what? Life is suffering and you have no say in it at all. Have fun. That would, be about, that would be about all we could do because our participation means nothing. But the good news is that the way we react and engage the world changes how the heart and mind feel moment to moment. That is the good news that follows the first noble truth, that the dukkha is um, something that we co-create. It's this dance we do with the world so we can get out of it. So the, 
the list of the suffering or categories of suffering that the Buddha has, I wanted to read them because a few weeks ago we were talking about how the Dharma deals with large spiritual issues and big topics of suffering where therapy kind of deals with really small specific types of suffering depression, anxiety, grief. Like you go to a therapist with a very specific type of suffering that we're trying to heal. Where the Dharma, the Buddha lists these broad generalizations that we're working on to, to end our suffering. And these are the ones that the Buddha talks about. So he says that birth is suffering. What he means by that is that coming into the world as a being, being vulnerable, not being able to take care of ourselves, the process of being born, it, there's suffering and stress the minute we come in, right? We don't come into the world with a party hat on, like our parents and family might, but the, the child comes in being like, what the, what is going on? Crying, screaming, and going from a safe, nurturing environment into a completely new experience. Birth is dukkha. There's stress there, right? Like we come right in with a sense of stress. Aging. Aging is suffering. What the Buddha means by that is it's not just aging as in aging as an older, right? Aging meaning that as human beings, we move through life and we develop and change and grow. We're not static. So if you think of yourself as a child and you grow up into adolescent and young adult and teenager and then you get older. So it's not just old age that is suffering and though aging is suffering because our body breaks down and our mind has challenges and and death itself right aging de death is the next one on the list by the way uh aging though part of the aging that the buddha talks about that suffering is just the fact that we're constantly growing and learning and changing and it's not always great so this is what i usually use as an example how many of you thought puberty was like the best time in your life right? You're like, if I could just go back to that clickishness and that teasing in elementary school, I want to start there. Growing up sucks. It's totally stressful. Like, well, you know, you think back in like junior high, those kind of years, those, oh man, that's not that cool. Like growing and aging is not really the funnest thing because we're always stepping on our own toes. We're trying to figure stuff out, like learning about friendships, romantic relationships, sexuality, economic, like there's so many things we have to learn as human beings. And it's a struggle. I mean, like some days I think to myself, have I just failed as a human being? Like there's things I still don't know how to do well. And I'm like, I should know this by, by now. Why did I never figure such and such out? Or someone will tell me something I don't know, it could be anything, like how I'm tying my shoe or, or doing my taxes, whatever it is. And I think, man, if I had just known that like six, seven years ago, that would have saved me a lot of stress. But we're not born with all the knowledge. We age. So there's this ignorance that we have as human beings that's always creating a little bit of, we're always in a blind spot. We don't totally understand what we're doing, where we're going, how to do it, and we're always falling on our face in one way or another. That's dukkha. That's the dukkha of the human experience. So birth, aging, illness, pretty self-explanatory. Illness is no fun. And death, those are the big ones. Those are the ones the Buddha says, look, everyone has to contend with that as a human being. Let's start there. If we can work with those, we could probably manage anything. So those are the, the big heavy hitters. 
And then there's two other ones that I think are hilarious. Literally, it's translated like um, union with what is displeasing, meaning being around someone or something you don't like, and separation from what is pleasing, meaning not getting what you want, right? You can't have it. You want to get it. You can't have it. There's frustration. What I think is hilarious is that the Buddha wrote those down almost 3,000 years ago, and he thought to himself, what are those universal things that human beings complain about that's always annoying them? I can't get what I want. Total, you, there's, you're not going to go anywhere in the world and find a human being that doesn't understand what that means. Like that time you really want something and you feel like you should have it or you get it and then you can't have it again. Is that not annoying? It's so annoying. <laughs> you have something and it breaks and you're like, oh man, I worked so hard to get the thing. It's unreliable. Now I got to get another one or I can't get another one. So those are the two ones I just think are the... I don't know, my heart just kind of feels in touch with those. Like, oh, I want that thing and I can't have it. Or, oh, I used to have that thing and I can't have it anymore. Or, I have to go hang out with that person and I don't really like them, right? I don't want to be with that person. Or, I really want to be with this person in my life and I miss them and I long to be with them and I can't have them close to my heart. We all know what that's like when you miss somebody, right? It's the universal human type of stress. We're missing someone because we want to be with them and we can't for whatever the reason. Maybe they've passed away or maybe they're just on vacation or maybe a friendship went the bad way and we don't have contact with, with folks. And we reminisce, right? We have that sense of loss. And that's dukkha. Those are the stresses that we have. In the last category, we won't, I won't go into a lot of detail because this is like a complicated one. But for those who've, who are a little bit more deeper in practice, I'll, I'm going to mention them. Um, and it might be a post-it note for some of you who are new to this, but the five aggregates of clinging. They're called khandas, K-H-A-N-D-A-S, the five khandas. I've, I've got talks on the podcast about these if you want to look them up, but the, the aggregates are what we attach ourselves to that we mistake for our true self. Yeah, that's actually a good definition, I think, right? Khandas, the clinging aggregates. It's the, the parts of ourselves, for lack of a better word, that we cling to that we mistake for our authentic identity. And we have this relationship that, that the clinging creates a form of dukkha. And all the, what they are is form, the body, ways that we cling to the body, our self-image, our identity, wanting the body to be something and it's not, or disliking something about our body or physical form. So we cling to the idea of our form. Feelings, pleasant and unpleasant and neutral sensations, Pleasant sensations are arising, and we want them to be a particular way, and we don't get them, or they're not happening in the way we like, or unpleasant sensations are arising, and we're trying to push them away. Basic, uh, I want pleasure, I don't want, un I don't want lack of pleasure, that kind of thing. Um, perceptions, perceptions, the way we label things, we have the way we label reality. Do you ever find that? Uh, and of course, you don't do this, but you probably know someone who does, who is very attached to the way they perceive something and they can't get out of their perception. And it's their perception that's causing them distress and they can't change their mind for the life of them. But you can see if they just reinterpreted it in a different way. And you know, you've never done this, of course, but we all know people who do that and we can't help them. You know, we can't get them to stop. Like, God, it's just, it's all in your head. You're overreacting. Stop already. So some humans have that and you might you know, know someone who does. So that's perception. Fabrication, the way we put together experience, 
Again, fabrication is just the way we create the suffering. And the last one is just consciousness, this awareness that human beings have. Human beings are very attached to being awake and aware. And when our awareness gets dull or doesn't work the way we like, or we can't use it in a particular way, human beings get really attached to that wakefulness. This consciousness we have is really embedded in our identity. So form, feeling, perception, fabrication, and consciousness. Again, it sounds complicated, it actually isn't. Every single one of us who meditated this evening actually worked with all of these, even if you didn't know it. You're, you're automatically working with these, even if you weren't aware of it. It's just what the heart and mind does moment to moment. We can talk about them another time. But the point for this evening is that the Buddha is giving us these broad categories of suffering so we can really ground ourselves in the unique and universal human experience of dukkha. The suffering that we're trying to really get in touch with are these big swatches of discontent that we have uh, as human beings. And we've all, we've all experienced them at one point or another. One other thing I'll say about the first noble truth. I just wanted to offer a couple quotes here. One of my favorite, I used to be able to quote it, I can't quote it in this moment, but one of my favorite descriptions the Buddha has of his teachings is the Buddha is in a, a grove in the forest and it's fall and the leaves are falling. So the meditators are surrounded by leaves. This is how I imagine. <laughs> this is how I imagine the scene based on the text. So they're in the, they're in the woods and it's fall. And in my interpretation, it's beautiful. And there's all these leaves. And the Buddha grabs a handful of leaves and he holds them up to the meditators and says, essentially, what is more, right? The leaves in my hand or the leaves that have fallen? Is it the leaves in the trees or leaves on the ground? Now I can't remember. In the trees. Okay. So he grabs a handful of leaves. It's the handful of leaves teaching and, and asks, you know, what is more, the leaves in my hand or the leaves in the trees? And everyone's like, trick question. <laughs> Who is this guy? So <laughs> spiritual teacher? Okay. So the end, of course, they're like, yeah, the stuff in your hand is uh, obviously smaller than in the trees. And he says, exactly. What I have in my hand are my teachings. It's just this small handful of leaves. It's not all this other philosophy and religion and spiritual esoteric stuff. It's just trying to get out of suffering and get happiness. The Buddha was really focused on just that question. Can we open our hearts and use this training of heart and mind to free ourselves from suffering? Beyond that, he really didn't care about a lot of other stuff when it came to spirituality or religion or philosophy. He often just said, I'm not interested in that. I just want to know what is getting in the way of your happiness and can we do that? Let's work on that. And that's all. And so I wanted to um, re remind us of this quote where the Buddha says, all that I teach is suffering and its cessation. The only thing I teach is suffering, it's arising, and it's passing. That is my teaching. And he says, all of that is contained in the Four Noble Truths, the handful of leaves. And as long as we keep coming back to the Four Noble Truths and reminding ourselves why we're on the cushion, that is the doorway that the Buddha says is to our freedom, is just remembering these Four Noble Truths, these handful of leaves. So I'm going to give you a couple quotes that have to do with the Four Noble Truths that are a couple of my favorites. Uh, this is one of them that the Buddha says, so the, one, the first one is, I teach suffering, its cause, and its release. Another one he says is, friends, 
Just as the footprint of any living being that walks can be placed within an elephant's footprint, so too all wholesome states can be included in the Four Noble Truths. Friends, just as the footprint of any living being that walks can be placed within an elephant's footprint, so too all wholesome states can be included in the Four Noble Truths. This is another one about... Ah, this is about the first noble truth. That's why I like this one as well. This is about just the first noble truth of suffering. So he's talking to the the bhikkhus, the monks. Just as bhikkhus, if (laughs) if anyone should speak thus, without having built the lower story of a peaked house, I will attempt to erect the upper story. This, of course, would be impossible. So too, if anyone should speak thus, Without having made a breakthrough to the noble truth of dukkha, as it really is, I will completely make an end to dukkha. This too is impossible. So what he's saying here is we really have to start with that acknowledgement of the noble truth of suffering. We have to start there because our heart tends to run away from it. We don't want to touch down on dukkha because it's stingy. You know, it's just natural for us to want to hide away from it. But that really is the doorway for our meditation practice. To the degree that we can really honor the fact of it and lean into it and be vulnerable to it, that's where the real work starts to get done. Then we can move to the the fun part, which is the release from the suffering. Another thing I really love about the first noble truth, last week we were talking about spiritual bypass, which is misusing spiritual tools to sidestep. Um, healing, essentially, and to create harm for ourselves, essentially, and sometimes to others. What's lovely about the Dharma from a psychological perspective is that in our attempt to heal from suffering and to gain joy and compassion, we don't pretend that there isn't bad things in life. We always, always, always start by acknowledging the pain. So that means when other people are suffering, we don't go to them and say, oh, you can get over it. There's a second noble truth. We always start with, oh, my heart compassion, empathy for you and your suffering, because the first noble truth connects us, right? So there isn't any spiritual bypass in the four noble truths. It always starts with acknowledging the reality of that which is so, whether we like it or not, really getting into that part of ourselves and with others. And that allows us to go to another human being who's suffering and be compassionate and be empathetic and sympathetic to their suffering without running away from it, without being scared of it, without trying to encourage them to deny it because watching them suffer makes us hurt, right? And this is something that we do in the Dharma is we look at others' pain and we say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to open my heart and be compassionate and offer goodwill and loving kindness. I'm really going to be there for, we, for each other. So that's another thing I think that's helpful to the first noble truth is to remember is that it invites us to reach out to each other in times of pain and to acknowledge all around us people suffering, all around us discontent, and we can find that place to be heart-to-heart with ourselves and with others. So that's the first noble truth, or at least my impression of it so far. (laughs) Thank you for listening, and thank you for your kind attention. I appreciate it. When we have our retreat... We'll spend a whole day talking about the Four Noble Truths. We'll get to each one of them and have exercises and meditations around them. So I thought we would do that retreat because Doyle and I were trying to figure out where would be a good place to start for all of us again. 
Uh, you got to start in the elephant's foot, I guess. There's no other, no other place, no other place to be. All right, my friends, let's plop and close on a heart-centered note. Let's get back into presence for a second or two here. a few intentional breaths, really feeling the sensations of breathing in this moment. And again, let's really notice how the body feels in this moment. Noticing the sense of sitting And let's once again attune to our heart, bringing awareness to the part of the body we call the heart, and maybe taking a few breaths, bringing some breath energy there. Attuned to the body and the breath. Awake and aware to the heart. Let us conclude this evening by answering this question. In this moment, if you could wish anything for all beings and know that wish would come to pass, what would that wish be? Offer that wish with each breath. May you all be well. Thanks for coming. Thanks for helping create a lovely evening. Thanks for joining us here at Wednesday Wake Up. We honor the traditional Buddhist practice of offering the teachings without charge. So this podcast will always be ad-free and will never be behind a paywall. This podcast is sustained exclusively by the generosity of listeners. If you've received value from this podcast and have found your life or practice enriched by listening to it, you can support Gregory as a teacher by going to our website, www.wednesdaywakeup.com, and click on Donate at the menu on the top. 
While you're here at the website, join our mailing list and follow Gregory on Instagram at Gregory Maloof Dharma. Thank you again for listening. May all beings be happy.